Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is a platform that amplifies underrepresented voices through print, events, and on the airwaves. We interrogate the intersections of culture and activism, bringing you interviews and discussions with guests who have knowledge and lived experiences on the topic at hand. I am Tribe, DJ, radio host, and music editor at Third. I'm Daniela. I'm a writer, musician, and producer at Third. Um, I am Nikita. I'm a creative facilitator and business advisor. I'll be guest hosting today. On this episode, we will be discussing the concept of wealth. How do we define what wealth is? As well as the complex intersections of wealth with business and activism. We will hear voices from people of different age ranges, giving us their personal take on what wealth means to them. A format that we have fondly borrowed from Tribe's solo podcast, Voice Notes, which you can find on Spotify and I encourage you to check out. And we have a guest co-host today on the show, Nikita Vavelde. Nikita is a business leader and advisor to creative businesses, nonprofit and community groups and early stage tech organizations. Through her consultancy and facilitation company, Concept of Lift, Nikita focuses on building forward thinking, inclusive leadership teams. She is also the director and co-founder of Local Champions CIC which supports grassroots organisations in East London to transform from voluntary-led to wage-paying social enterprises. Nikita is known for challenging leadership teams and driving incubator and accelerator programmes addressing societal problems such as homelessness, mental health, well-being, reimagining the education system and environmental sustainability issues. Nikita, welcome. Hiya, how you doing? Good, thank you so much for being here. Um, I just have to say that Nikita was one of the lovely supporters of the Indiegogo campaign we ran alongside the Defiant Beauty issue of our print magazine. Um, thanks again to everyone who took part in that. We love you so much. Um, so the perk that Nikita went for on the crowdfunder was to be on the show with us. And now you're here and we're so excited to have you. Please, can you tell our lovely listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure about myself. So I guess uh, my name is Nikita. I'm a third culture kid. Um, so I'm half Rwandese, half Dutch, uh, but grew up in eight different countries but also live at pretty much every intersection of life. <laughs> and I, I basically support grassroots leaders and business owners uh, to find their best selves and the best versions of their projects or businesses. I guess I take particular pride in pushing the boundaries of what people think is possible, but also stretching the perceived limits of society through action and reflection. So my hope is that this work that we do and the work that I do in some small extent can move industries, government and people in a direction that I think is positive social change. And I guess I'm just really happy to be here and um, look at our definitions of wealth. So Nikita, I was fascinated by this topic when you first brought it to me because straight off the bat, I realized that we were not about to throw a practical workshop on investments and interest rates, but actually take a critical engagement with what the actual concept of wealth means to people. So tell me, how did you become interested in the topic in the first place? And what has been your personal journey with it? Yeah, for sure. I guess what interested me is the things that I've learned along the way. So I guess the good things, you know, like spiritual health and building a level of contentment within myself, but also the bad things, right? So having never been taught any financial literacy, so dealing with bad credit, the downsides of being self-employed. I mean, of course, there's loads of good things, but you know, you also forget all the bad things. And just looking at and looking at the values that we place on ourselves and our communities beyond the economy, um, and defining that between, you know, I work at the intersection of several communities, researchers, academics, and institutions, and ages and ranges and classes. And I guess it's it's quite interesting having those conversations weekly and debates about what wealth is and the conditions of wealth. Um, which is actually the original definition of wealth in Old English. It's just wealth equals the conditions of well-being. So I'm just a bit fascinated about wealth, wealth inequality, 
but also if we redefine and reimagine wealth in this age of disruption, um, what does it look like to be holistically wealthy? That's so interesting that the original definition of wealth is well-being and somehow it's been like co-opted to mean just like the accumulation of money because that somehow gets entangled with being able to, yeah, what to sustain well-being. And um, we'll definitely hear some similar critique in the field recordings um, we'll play later. Um, what about you, Tribe? Like how, how does this topic resonate with you? In, well, first of all, I'd say there's several ways in which people can be wealthy, as you, as people always say, you can be wealthy spiritually, um, uh, inwardly in different ways. But if we're going to go down the kind of financial kind of mindset, I think a lot of it can be something that's passed down and, um, taught how to be wealthy and how to accumulate wealth. And I think it's quite, it's quite hard for, for a lot of people to kind of get that mindset organically or kind of develop that mindset. So that's kind of how I see that, like those who have it because they've mainly maybe learned from a very young age from those around them and those who had to teach themselves and obviously those who don't. So I don't think it's something that people come by easily. Yeah, that education angle is definitely um, resonates a lot. I think for myself, the first time that I really engaged with the word um, was probably when I, like in the traditional sense, it was probably when I went to this kind of workshop, um, pretty ironic in this context, but it was a workshop for how to build and maintain your wealth. And um, it was like... Uh, it was part of a like women's in TV and film group and they put on discussions and, and it was like definitely quite interesting. And when you, and kind of in the room, there was a quite an age range and it was definitely people who obviously lacked to some degree, the literacy of what like, yeah, financial literacy and and the person on stage was basically talking about how, you know, if you just keep your money in the bank, then inflation will eat away at your savings. And here are all these ways that you can invest your money. And this is what happens. And oh, by the way, she actually represents like a wealth management company, which was like, obviously why she was there, which is fine. I mean, it was still a very interesting talk. But immediately when you go to that kind of event and talk, you start to like... The, the whole kind of confines of the discussion is within sort of like a capitalist structure, right? It's about how to grow your wealth. And oftentimes the easiest way to do it is to invest in the safest performing companies, which often have questionable practices, which is why they're so profitable. And then you start thinking about, okay, how can I grow my money or whatever, but that is in an ethical way. And that just kind of ties you up in this whole thing. So I, for me, whilst just like thinking about all of that what I find really interesting is like trying to untangle from literal financial anxiety and thinking about retirement and what the future holds which is entangled with the environment and all those kind of things and separating that from like how can I do it in an ethical way and how can I do it in a way that doesn't contribute to like a systemic structure that I don't necessarily want to fully support yeah, and I guess um, what I got really curious about is just like, well, you, we've all just mentioned like financial wealth, but if we went to a workshop today after everything we've been through, you know, COVID and every other crisis that happens every single day, would a uh, building your wealth workshop be the same thing, right? Or, or would we consider so many different factors um, and consider, like, is wealth the same as being rich? A very rich person is a billionaire, right? Is a very wealthy person a billionaire in your head? Because in my head, it's not that anymore. It's like someone that has a purpose in life, you know, has spiritual health, has family health, potentially has a few assets. But I mean, I don't have the most assets, but I feel like I'm quite wealthy and my relationships are healthy and I work in something I love and I'm, you know, mentally okay. And I have practices that make me wealthy, in my opinion, right? And other people may see that. Whereas I have friends who maybe are wealthier, if we look at, you know, our net income um, and net assets, but can they be resistant to chaos and to, you know, 
disruption that society is throwing at us left, right, and center now. Um, and I can't imagine we'll end anytime soon. And it's like, I, might, I, I did some research and there's like the Humankind Index in Scotland, which basically redefines wealth for Scotland and looks at so many things beyond like quality of you know, work, quality of the communities, environment, whatever, equality, beyond what is technically the definition of wealth uh, from an economic point of view. But the economy, nobody, I, like, can someone really argue the economy is working for us all? Like, even in really rich co- countries, like, there's a high suicide deaths, there's high depression, all these kind of things. It kind of goes back to what I first kind of put out, like, it depends how you define wealthy. Some people seek wealth in the people around them and, you know, and, and having a good life. Some people speak spir- seek spiritual wealth. And even if we was to go down the financial route, you know, and I was quite surprised you put, you brought out the big C, capitalism, so early on in the conversation. <laughs> right away, uh, Daniela. Of course, but, of course. <laughs> but um, if even if we was to go down that route as well, it would be relative, like you said, in, to different groups, to different countries, different stages in your life. So I, I think it is definitely relative uh, to the individual and what they seek and what they see as fulfilling in life as well. And like, just one more thing. It's just, I guess I have to give the caveat, right? But I guess there's a saying, and I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's something like wealth is where history shows up in your wallet. So what I'm not really, you know, discussing right now is like the compound and domino effect of systemic issues that reduce wealth in certain communities. But like looking at it more like a holistically, how can we all be okay and feel wealthy? <laughs> in the most recent, like I would say 20, 30 years, there is also a bit of a change. And maybe this has been sped up by the pandemic in terms of wanting the, the desire to be wealthy as well. I think people have kind of re-examined that, you know, when they spoke about in the 80s, you know, that yuppie culture and wanting to climb the business ladder. I don't know if everyone wants that still. In fact, you know, we had the whole thing that people mentioned of, and I don't know if it's really genuine, but the great resignation, loads of people are quitting their jobs. I heard about doctors quitting to become bakers, you know, because it no longer is about building wealth for some people. Yeah. And I wonder if there is like a kind of link up with sort of the backlash against all the bad things that advertising has done to our society. I feel like there's a backlash against like body image, against what is the ideal lifestyle, all this kind of thing was, which was so pushed by advertising in the 60s, 70s, and now like continue to be pushed. But as people get somehow wiser to to it obviously advertising is adapting and targeting us in different ways but I don't know maybe some of that plays into it you know people kind of starting to resist the messages that have been uh, poured down our throats for decades or our parents included and that kind of kind of goes back to what the definition of wealth is because sometimes it's like it can be conflated with what might be like a visual like a a visual representation of what wealth looks like and that becomes a thing that people are trying to go after and that includes having expensive objects and and there is maybe like a return to purity in that sense before further ado We will play the field recordings that we've gathered for our listeners. So here's a selection of recordings that were sent to us from our friends and family, age range from people who were born in 1972 to who's the youngest person born in 2001, telling us their definitions of wealth. So what is wealth? I was born in 1978. What was wealth to me? What is wealth to me? My definition of wealth is health. Health is the foundation. You know, knowing that your body is in tune with your mind, mental and physical health. That entails getting yourself to a good BMI. Not for the purposes of vanity, but for health and logistic reasons. How I become wealthy, 
I optimize my health. So I always watch what I eat. I exercise three times a week. And I try and make what I program my mind to be in terms of what I expose my mind to is healthy because that is, you know, the mind triggers the body. So if you've got a healthy mind, a mind that's able to reciprocate thoughts and put them into action, that's a healthy mind. So, I mean, I'm always aware of that. And that's something that I think is beneficial going forward and has been in the past. Um, materialistic things, it's not that important, though being able to provide is. And if you have your health or if you're in good health, those things are easily obtained if you put your mind to it. Hi, my name is Faye. I was born in 1987, uh, originally from Cornwall. So to me, the definition of wealth is to be fortunate, to have fortune or to have an abundance of something in particular. Obviously, in the strictest term, maybe we're talking about finances. It would be to be wealthy, so to have plenty of money, especially more so than your means so you always have plenty of cash and you can spend it frivolously um and to be wealthy in any other concept again would be i was wealthy because of my love for friends and family um it would be mean to be happy or to have love and a fulfilling life hi my name is jessica I'm a hypnotherapist and I was born in 1983. Wealth to me is a feeling in my body of ease and certainty and being able to afford my freest and most expansive conscious choices. Uh, what is wealth? Um, my name is Naeem, I'm 27, I'm a student. I think that being wealthy is not a measure of the money you possess, but rather the amount of money that, you, that affords you the time to do the things that you want. I'm not wealthy by any stretch of imagination. I've been fortunate enough to do the things I want. Like I saved enough money to go to Brazil and play sambo, so I've done for about 15 years now. I'm going to have the time to study again. I don't need to worry about finances this time around. So I think um, wealth is, in, is not an intrinsic measure, measurement. It's an extrinsic one. It's personal. And I think you have time to do the things that you love. doesn't matter how wealthy you are. I was born in 1972, and for me, my definition of wealth has changed quite considerably over, over that time. When I were a younger man, my definition probably would have centered around the accumulation of material things, material wealth. And I suppose I was a product of my upbringing, really, growing up in a Western capitalist society where your parents encourage you to get an education, of course, uh, buy a house, get a car and obtain a certain amount of material wealth. And regardless of what they said about spiritual wealth, that was certainly um, the, the primary focus initially in the early part of my adulthood. But as you mature... And as I suppose you gather some of that material wealth, you start forming perhaps more deep relationships with people. Maybe you have a partner, a life partner. Maybe you have children. And then wealth becomes more spiritual. It's about spending time, shared experiences with people. Those people that you love and want to spend your time with. I mentioned earlier time as well. And, and for me, time is also a very important definition of wealth. And again, comparing how I was when I was a younger man and, and to now, I had an abundance of time, which I didn't fully appreciate. And now with work, family and other commitments, time to do what I want, whether that be to read or to pursue hobbies, play music, volunteer, time becomes even more valuable in this stage in a person's life. And I think having more time is something that I certainly aspire to and I regard that as a measure of wealth. And back to my parents' generation, my mother, I'm still grateful and privileged that my mother's still around. She was born in 1938. And so for her, she has 
material comfort and an abundance of time, but increasingly her definition of wealth is synonymous with, with health. So again, that's yet another definition of wealth. And I think it's something that just changes over your lifetime. I don't think it's fixed from uh, when you become an adult, uh, a young adult, to when you become, become an older person. I think it's just something that evolves over time. My name is Ryan. I was born in 1981, which means I am 40 years old. And I'm okay with that. Let's see, wealth. I mean, it's money, right? If I'm thinking about it, it's like, what is money for? Money, you need money to live, you need money to do things. But, um, you know, people seem to be obsessed with sort of buying things. They want stuff or, you know, money can buy you access or status. But um, I guess recently money gets you time. So in a way, if you can feel wealthy, it's like I've got time. I've got space to think about things and or do things like you don't need to be tr maybe not trading your time for some for so little or that you're able to carve back a bit of time. And, and I think there's just like, there's this total ruse, which is this trap where it's like, oh, if you're just more efficient, like if you're just, if you do things faster, you'll, you'll then you'll have your time, you'll have your time back. But I don't think that's, that's clearly not true, right? Like every sort of technological advancement is supposed to free people up, but actually, that just ends up getting closed down because that becomes the new baseline. And so we just to do all these extra things and, and, and achieve so much more. And so I just think I want to walk backwards from all that capitalist crap. I just, I don't want the things, you know, I don't care. I don't want the status. I don't want the, I don't want, I don't want the access anywhere. <laughs> I just, I just want to, um, but I do want to connect with people. That I guess that intimacy that comes with friendship, and uh, with that can also come with family, chosen or otherwise, oftentimes chosen. But that's hard. I think that's hard to that's hard to make. It's hard to get when you're an adult. You know, when you're when you're forty years old, like I am. It's it's how do you be? How do you make those connections? Right? How do you how do you have serious connections with people, or how do you make them? And so, especially if you're not if you haven't banked that many over over the years or if you've had to kind of jettison the ones that were on offer just to get out of whatever situation you were in to get where you are. Hi there, my name is Sarah and I am 34 years old. Wealth to me ultimately means freedom the ability to do what I feel called to do, to be able to create and live the kind of life um, where I'm financially independent and create stability, intergenerational wealth as well, a wealth that will sustain me and, and my children in future. Hi, I'm Jennifer. I was born in 2001 and what wealth to me means having enough money to like stabilize yourself to pay for things that you don't necessarily need but like want as well and to help like other people as well um and there were two people who also sent us their thoughts about what wealth means but unfortunately it was recorded with a backing track which we don't have the license to use so i'm just going to summarize what they said so paul smith who was born in 1991 says something along the lines of first of all like on the face of it you're talking about money and what you own but then your family and friends and being healthy is really really important as well and here he goes also into the two sides of being healthy which some of our other friends and family also addressed and he talked about being 
the two sides of, of health. So being mentally and physically healthy. So being able to do the day-to-day activities without being out of breath, um, which I really loved as a definition of physical health and also being able to get out of bed, which I found again, a very vivid description of being mentally um, healthy. And Maya, um, who was born in 1992, put a really interesting definition on wealth as well. So they said that for them, wealth is has something to do with paying to remove inconveniences from your life. So paying for any services you need, like cleaning your kitchen and those kind of things that you might not necessarily want to do. If you're wealthy, then it means you don't need to have those inconveniences. So, yeah, do you have any immediate responses to those field recordings? No, I think it's just interesting, like the breadth of definitions, but I guess all are intrinsically holistic, um, which I don't know if that's just because of the people we know <laughs> and that we've asked for their opinions. But I guess, you know, it like I was quite surprised by Jennifer, who, shout out, is my little sister. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's still a lot about money. And then the older people got is like they have evolved to thinking as well. So no one just went straight, you know, binary, being able to buy a house and hand it over to your children. Whereas everybody kind of had, you know, a feeling of ease, removing inconveniences, health and all that kind of stuff. So it's quite cool, quite interesting. Yeah. Um, I think like one of our hypotheses was that people would have that their differences in their definition of wealth would be influenced by their age or like generational differences. But it actually seemed like everyone had like. Yeah, there was a there's like a breadth of definition, but the the generational age wasn't really a deciding factor. But I do have to say, like, I love what Jennifer said um, in her recording at the end, which was to help other people. That was a really poignant and beautiful point to make. That like, yeah, like that. What being wealthy means you can help other people. I really love that. I have a theory that we're moving towards more community based approaches to life, which is ironic because. Globalization is ever occurring, but somehow the pandemic has made us look more local and be better at networking and community and having um, valuable relationships. So do you think these definitions would have been the same three years ago? You know what I mean? Because I don't think they would have. I think maybe we can't differentiate the self from the meaning of wealth in general because we're all moving towards a more community view. I, I mean, I agree with you, but I think it's, I agree with you theoretically. Obviously, I haven't like looked at any studies on this, but you know, I, you know, you constantly hear the term late stage capitalism thrown about, and you know, the idea that, like I said before earlier on, people's definitions of what wealthy is, I think, would have changed and would have been impacted by um, the uh, pandemic because we've seen how the economy can, can grow to a halt, and you you can see how you know. Things like employment isn't the you know the be all and everything, um. So it, it does it has made us reevaluate a lot of the things that has been drummed into us from a young age, as stuff that we should be aspiring to, whether that's through marketing or you know through our parents, you know aspirations for us when we get older. So I I think there is a kind of shift in the way that we think. Um, I don't know whether that might change back and it might be a pendulum or we're moving into a kind of gradual, you know, direction away from uh, the capitalism that we are so accustomed to and grown up with. I mean, that's the hope, right? But we're constantly stuck in trends. So we need to push this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. Um, as you were speaking, Tribe, it was, just ma- it was making me think that like, a person is not going to say, okay, I'm going to do a recording for a podcast. And they look at our like kind of like backlog of topics that we cover and come on the show and be like, I think wealth is having fast cars and an amazing house and having like a pool, like blah, blah, blah. Right. They're going to be like, well, wealth is doing that. And there's like, naturally, I think it's like a na- like selection bias and people are going to be like family, all this kind of stuff. So acknowledging that what I do find interesting is that like, okay, let's assume people will say some stuff that's other than like actual money what I find really interesting is that the things that are coming through as like the non-money things are like health like I feel like health and mental health is coming up as like the loudest second 
place or first place as a thing that isn't money in the people's feedback. And maybe that's something that's worth kind of pondering on. Health, well, health is something that you can't take for granted because it's very clear, you know, from the get go, the moment you're born, you know, you reach your peak. And then I guess as you get older, the things that you are capable of doing at your peak age, you know, physical no peak, longer, yeah. your mm. physical peak mm-hmm. no longer is, you know, the case. And, and again, again, health and mental health is another thing that has become quite poignant during a, a moment like COVID. Cause one, when you're stuck indoors, a lot of people struggled with their mental health and the pandemic itself is a health thing, you know? So I think that's another thing that was highlighted for a lot of people and, and it made us realize we can't take for granted. Also, I think health is like one of the only, like, um, what's it called? Like, um, equatable things in life benchmark, right? It doesn't matter what age, class, race you are. Like everybody can understand if you don't have health, you can be a billionaire, but if you have a stroke tomorrow, you're going to understand. You're, of course, you're going to have better health care and you're going to be taken care of better, right? But you're going to understand the issues of health. So I think it's quite like a unifying factor for everyone, especially because of the pandemic, right? So the relationship between health and wealth just becomes ever more evident and, you know, persistent in our lives because everybody's kind of had to deal with the pandemic, whether we wanted to or not. Mm, yeah. Um, I thought in Roger's recording where he talked about his mum and how like as she's getting older, he's like the kind of health re- is the health aspect is not like a hypothetical idea. And um, I remember like a recent conversation I had with my mum about like whether to go home over tickets were quite expensive, etc. And she said she was she just said this thing. She was like, you know, money is infinite, but health isn't. And like what she meant by money is infinite. She's just like, you can always work more and make money if you need to, but like there's only a limited amount of time that we all have on this earth, which obviously was very upsetting, but I got her point and I immediately booked the tickets. Yeah, I think that's very true. And and that's the thing. I think um, the value placed on money, sometimes it's misguided in the sense of like, it is for people to have an easier life the whole pursuit of money, but sometimes it's that realisation that actually the easier life is to spend more time with people and do the things that you love or want to do to enjoy your life. And sometimes that gets lost in the whole process of things, you know, where you, was it, you work to live? No, you, yeah, instead of living to, what is it? Yeah, you work to live, not live to work. That's the phrase. One of the things I wanted to also point out is spiritual wealth, right? I, I was kind of slightly listening to this, uh, the book, the famous one, Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, and it's about, you know, I can't pronounce his, pronounce his name, Paramansa. He, he kind of goes out and it's about his, his life pursuing spiritual kind of fulfillment, you know, and, and kind of following his calling. And, you know, I, I've, Feel in his own way, his whole life was that pursuit of wealth, but in a spiritual sense. And what he felt was the thing to uh, guide him and to be at a point where he he was wealthy and fulfilled, you know, in a spiritual sense. And and he sought people who had that uh, that wealth of knowledge and and uh, experience and understanding of the universe and the inner self for guidance and stuff. But you know what, like, what a, this may not be a healthy exercise, everyone, but, you know, if, you know, we, ke- we keep defining, like, health as part of wealth, right? But how many people are actually, or spiritual health, or creative health, wealth, or, you know, freedom, or whatever, but how many people are putting the same practices towards building financial health, as well as building, you know, health wealth, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous. But I just wonder, like, if, like, I personally know that I value physical health and mental health significantly, as well as financial stability. But I know that I can very much get carried away with my work and let go of the physical and mental health at times, you know? Like right now, playing football has taken a backbone because of the organizational work that we have going on. So I wonder if like, not only do we need to look at 
you know, reconceptualizing and, and redefining wealth, but should we also like start creating frameworks for refocusing on what our redefined wealth is? <laughs> Cause I don't know. I feel like a lot of these people and like Paul said a good thing, right? Like being able to get out of bed is such a huge thing. And if I look at what wealth means to me, so spiritual plus health plus finance, if any of those three are taken away, then I'm pretty much doomed for a week or two <laughs> until I build them back up, right? So what are we doing? And like, do you see people acting in the way that we're now defining wealth? Is that a fair question? I don't know. I think physically, maybe, maybe. I, I, I feel like people around me anyway seem to have um, taken up sports and activities uh, that they find enjoyable and, and doing it for leisure. And I think people are valuing their health. and But it might. I also put it down to being a bit older as well. When you kind of get towards your late 20s and stuff like that, and you, you realize thing, you can't really take your health for granted. I'm going to reference my mum for the second time on this show. Um, because actually something that she said, I think is actually a really practical, helpful way for me anyway, to like kind of balance the sort of like working hard to for financial stability and health. Cause ever since I was really little, cause I was a musician most of my life speaking, like I'm an old person, but I'm not that old. But anyway, I was a musician. I was a classical musician for most of my life. And I didn't do a lot of physical activities and to like, get me to do, do more exercise and whatnot. My mom was describing to me how, like, if you do exercise, it's like putting money in the bank, except the bank is your like body and the money that you're putting in is like health. And you're like accumulating this health wealth for the rest of your life. And she's someone who was always really active, always like ran and whatever. And she had me when she was like 41 years old and she's 72 now. And if you saw her, you think she's like 50 years old. Yeah, I always found that really, really like, it's just like really visual. And like, unfortunately, it does play into a bit of like that capitalist imagery. But like when you think about it like that and you think, okay, if I don't put health into my body bank, then it's going to get depleted and I'm not going to have very much when I'm older. That always motivated me. I think that's a very interesting way of looking at it. But it's funny that we're still using like, you know, economic terms, which always happens. You know, like even if you look at time banking as a form to fight capitalism, it's still called time banking. <laughs> but we definitely, I agree, physical health is such a huge... And then it's like, what about those that aren't, you know, like are we being ableist to some extent? Yeah. What do you think, Nikita? What if, what, how would you answer your own question? I'm a bit scared to answer that question. I, I used to always think of health as physical health. Um, and then somewhere along the last three or four years that adapted and I found myself talking about health as one thing, you know, mental and physically it being one thing. And I go to the gym to work on my body and I see a therapist, A, because my parents raised me as a third culture kid and it's very difficult, <laughs> as well as all family issues. But B, I remember just one day, you know, I was dealing with some kind of like, and I don't panic ever. And I was having panic attacks as my granddad had just died and a bunch of things had happened. And I just woke up and like, I think I saw one of my clients go to a therapist and normally she's a bit wild. And she came out of therapy, I was waiting for her to go to dinner and a meeting and she came out of therapy, like looking so relaxed and looked like she had gone through enlightenment. And I was like, I need some of that. So I was like, I'm going to try this game of therapy because I'm a bit competitive as well. So I found a therapist and it just like changed my life truly. And then I just started thinking about like going to therapy is the same as going to the gym, right? Just for your mind and being healthy and clear. So yeah, I think health is so important, but let's not forget about being too ableist and thinking about those that can't go to the gym um, in that way, but can still technically work on their mental health, right? And health in different ways. Just to say, I really like that analogy. I like to compare going to therapy as going to a physiotherapist because like in doing sports, I feel like in doing sports, you accumulate potentially injuries and niggles and whatever. And if you don't work on those, they can become really big problems. And so, yeah, I really like the kind of therapy and physiotherapy analogy as well. I guess my take from what you just said is that it, I think it looks different for everybody. So 
I guess if I was to, for example, refer to my ADD, there's some mornings where I'm like fully on it, completely focused. And, you know, my ability to get certain things done is like, you know, on a hundred and, you know, and then there's days where that bar, that bar looks different, you know, and you got to work with it. And I can imagine for many people, when we're talking about wealth, that bar will look different, even from day to day, you know, uh, and, and from year to year. And I think it, from individual to individual, I really think it it's very uh, personalized and it's always moving. I like that. And side note, like I just I was thinking, like we've all gamified this experience for ourselves. So you just said that bar of health, right? Like I just, I just, find, and we were talking about, I, I gamify everything in my head. I was just like, I don't know, this isn't relevant. Although maybe it relates to mental health and, you know, digital um, influence on our minds right now. But I guess it's just an interesting point of view. Whenever we were all discussing it, we gamified it. And does that, like, is that healthy? <laughs> Oh my God, that's such a good point. Um, I actually wanted to go back to what you, you said earlier about how when I was referring to the health body bank, putting health in my body, whatever, and you were like, oh yeah, you know, it's problematic, the economic terms, time banking is also using economic terms. And you talk about gamification, such a good question because it's effective to a certain extent. But if you think about how often games in a way they're training you for something in the real world for good or for bad. I mean, do you know how long it took me? Like, I think like, honestly, this is, I shouldn't say this on air, but I think I only realized like Monopoly is Monopoly. Until I was like 25, you know, like that it's like you're playing capitalism. <laughs> like I genuinely think I just was like, Oh my God. <laughs> I know. It's so obvious. It's so yeah. obvious that it's like, you don't realize it because it's so obvious. And then when you re-realize it, you're like, but this can't be it. It's too obvious. Yeah. Is this you what you're telling six-year-olds, you know, Did- like playing debt? <laughs> yeah. That was what, how it was created. So it was originally called Landlord by a woman. I can't remember what her name was, but it was to actually kind of show capitalism. Uh, and then it kind of took off. And when it was bought out, it, it was like reimagined into a, like a family game because people enjoyed it. But actually the original person who created it was trying to kind of slightly show capitalism. Yeah. I have to talk about Fitbits and those kind of fitness watches because we were talking about gamification and not to say we're going to have any solutions or actually like good critique, but we're just like addressing these things, right? So we talked about um, using economic terms to describe things like time banking and your health. You just talk about gamification. We talked about how games train us to do stuff. People's obsession with statistics and stuff now, like with the watches, I don't know. Do you guys have any opinions about this? Do you have one? Do you love I mean, it? Do you love it? Are you addicted? <laughs> I find it super interesting. So I can't remember who I was sitting with the other day, but it was probably from one of my youth programs or something. And the lady was saying um, that she doesn't allow phones in the bedroom, but she mentioned having bought a Fitbit for her son because he's so good with numbers that it becomes like a game for him. And it's actually really good and fun. And he likes like, you know, data analyzes it. Um, but doesn't become obsessed with it, like for health reasons, just like to be creative with the numbers, which is super interesting, right? But then I personally, I don't like wearing a watch, so I don't have one, but I was looking at those aura rings because I was like, I want to know like how much I sleep and whatever, but didn't go for it because I know that I, I don't think it's good for my mental health, right? But then again, you see people who do drastically improve their health in whichever way they need to do it, whether it's improving sleep or reducing weight or whatever, to a healthy degree using the technology. So like to, technology is an agent for change, right? But to what extent does it then cross the lines of building wealth in the definition of health, spiritual and financial um, versus potentially then destroying it as well <laughs> and building a reliance on it? <laughs> I mean, one of these watches can definitely destroy my wealth because they're pretty expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Nikita, did you have any, because you had some, I feel like you had some interesting thoughts about health care in the context of like free healthcare, private healthcare. Obviously, I appreciate the NHS and all NHS workers. 
but often can get quite frustrated <laughs> with the NHS and the level of care. But then, I mean, I have friends across the world and, you know, whenever my friends from America or Puerto Rico or, you know, Canada come across and they're just like, you cannot even begin to complain Nikita or whoever I'm with or any English people. They're just like, you don't understand. Like I, I cut my finger off and I didn't go to the hospital because I don't want to like, or like my friend in Miami, Natis walked to the hospital with like a, like, like bloody like finger dripping um, because they didn't want to pay for an ambulance. Right. We're here like virtually, you know, I've had an emergency operation in the UK and they got me an ambulance and I didn't have to wake up to thousands of credit card debt, you know, and that I guess undermines all our work on philosophy of wealth, all our, you know, education on what means to be healthy and wealthy, because if you can't take care of your basic needs and emergencies, then I think we're all in trouble. And I think that's virtually unfair. If you live in a country where there is a poor healthcare system, there's a limitation to how much health you can kind of have for yourself, if, especially if something goes wrong. I think there's only so much that is in our control, I guess. And I guess it just like, in my point of view, just makes the the spectrum of inequality so much higher, right? If two people have the same health issue, one is going to get drastically worse in terms of um, income and wealth. And one is going to be resistant and resilient to that. And thereby, we're just continuing this spectrum, um, which, is, which is quite scary. We, we all know the benchmarks and you know, what systems work for the masses and which don't. But there was a study in the U.S. that said there's a correlation between happiness and wealth. Um, and it's like after earning, um, I don't like... I think this is correct, but after earning 75K US dollars per year, happiness doesn't increase, but the lower your income, the worse you feel. So there is like a pinnacle. There's a point as which like, yes, happiness and wealth do correlate. And then after 75K, that doesn't correlate anymore. And I guess that's quite interesting. It's like all these things come into play and like extenuating circumstances, like health emergencies come into play but also just generally happiness and wealth are have an interesting correlation. And then it comes back to what you were saying about advertising, right? Like, is the accumulation of wealth, if it doesn't correlate with happiness, it's just basically based on advertising and what we're being fed and the images we see, because virtually you should know and feel, all right, my life is cool now. What I was going to do is actually go straight into something else that we discussed and we're going to discuss is like the intersection of business and activism, right? I recently left a contract because I didn't agree with the board, you know, like, and it was, it was, I kind of missed the money, right? But it was a good contract, but fundamentally there was no representation on the board and they were not meaningfully trying to solve that were kept saying and making things up and I I had to have a difficult discussion and couldn't see eye to eye right and it's just like that's where my personal view on intersection and business and activism it's like can we put pressure on industries can we change industries through peer mentoring groups through small cohorts 10 at a time to instill things like the good work standard which like you know advocates for like minimum wage and all kinds of things violence against women as well as other things are there benchmarks? Are there labels that we can create and attach to actually make it incentivized for corporations and for businesses as well as freelancers and, you know, whoever is responsible for that? Because it's true. As a small business, suddenly you become responsible for making every ethical decision and morally and financially, sometimes that puts you at a crossroads, right? And hopefully you do the right thing, but surely the only way to redefine wealth on a larger scale is to put pressure and through, you know, movements and organizing of employees to change the way that we see society. The mayor of London created a good work standard, which was basically based off a prosperity index that I think London Legacy Development Corporation came up with a couple of years ago, which again was like, you know, the humankind index in Scotland and looking at, you know, what makes a neighborhood prosperous. 
And it basically brings together the best employment practices and links to resources and support across London. So part of my work and due to some of the funding that I work with is to help organizations, SMEs, freelancers, and larger organizations start to actually use this initiative. And then they become part, they get the standard, they get the stamp, and they meet a benchmark that the mayor wants every London employer to work towards. So that can include anything from, you know, providing reduced absences and sick leave, you know, recruiting and attracting and retaining the best skills, having better motivation and engagement practices. And the idea is that it actually helps you improve your reputation and increase productivity while doing it in a way that is ethical. So yeah, that's the that's one way that I think we can affect industry. I don't think it's one that's particularly uh, groundbreaking in any way. I think it is important to set the minimum standard of, you know, you should not abuse women um, and you should pay people minimum wage and, you know, provide mental health support. But it isn't anything that is going to drastically change. Maybe it will. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it will if every organization does. But yeah, I just wonder, like, what are your opinions on should business and activism intersect or are we getting too much into the, you know, combining state and church kind of territory? Whoa, your questions are so multi-layered. <laughs> Why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they intersect is my question. I feel like if we try to separate things too much, then all is lost, right? Like the things that have inspired me the most in the past couple of years are people are, are when there is like a momentum that comes out of a situation and people in different spheres are talking about it and doing it. And it's this concept of emergence. And I think there are like also plenty of examples where activism and business and also you know, ethics that I feel like we can support with within the structures that might have bad products um, exist in the world. There are examples of real ethical investment options, for example. Like if you were talking about putting your money where to back investment options that are ethical. There was this really interesting idea. This has happened right during the whole kind of, I guess, discussion around Black Lives Matter, where there, a, a woman, I think she's like a historian or something, argued that change in society in regards to, I guess, uh, race and African-Americans happened when there was a confluence of economic interest. When, for example, with um, the 1960s and all the kind of legislations that came through, uh, that came about because uh, in, you know, the whole Vietnam War and things like that and their fight against, com against communism, it looked bad on the U.S., that they were treating their own citizens bad when they're out there trying to promote democracy and, you know, and try and push to, um, this certain kind of economic uh, idea and social idea forward. Change in terms of like things that, whether it's ethical or societal change, sometimes I guess the argument is that it, when it there's a confluence of other interests, whether that's economical, that are economical, uh, a direction that a country's trying to pursue. So yeah, in terms of like the change that we want to see in society, sometimes that that doesn't bubble over on, onto the mainstream until there's a, a real interest that is an ulterior, ulterior motive. But it's quite cynical perspective. And I, I'd probably like to argue maybe against that, that everything that happened with the George Floyd thing and the most recent uh, Black Lives African-American movement might not have been pushed by you know personal interests or economic interests but more of a kind of direction of we've seen something terrible happen and we can't really sit idly by no more so maybe there's an argument against that but the woman at the time also argued about you know we think companies like Nike and them kind of uh, pursuing like let's say Colin Kaepernick and things like that it was that kind of due to polling um, and research that showed that you know millennials and the gener um, generation Z coming up wanted to shop ethically they wanted uh, to kind of get behind companies that have a better kind of social stance so it wasn't necessarily put like it wasn't their decision wasn't kind of pushed by the fact that they believe in this position but more recognizing that the those buying into the company it's in their own best best interests to kind of align with their eth uh, ethical and societal beliefs 
Yeah, yeah. And in answer to Nikita's question of like whether the whether there should be more inter- interweaving of like business and activism, I think that's that's exactly it, right? Like if if the activism can exert enough pressure on the market coming back to the big C, then businesses are forced to behave in other ways and also the businesses who in their in their inception is more ethical or whatever will have m- more of a chance of surviving so yeah i think we should go, we should go for more more in more interweaving of more those, interweaving yeah <laughs> and i guess it's the only way we'll really be able to like you know systemically change the definition of wealth because ultimately we can say things as 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 citizens and that will eventually change the definition and dynamic and research can build onto that but fundamentally we live in a capitalist society so industry has the biggest force i think unfortunately So just a very kind of almost like the last thing I want to just make sure we cover, which is this beautiful sentence that came out of our previous discussion when we were preparing for the show. And it was something along the lines of like problems in society put pressure on people's ability to build and maintain physical, mental and financial wealth. So if we can solve those societal pressures, then it will help people to build and maintain wealth and wealth in the de- like the broad definition that we've been talking about, like to do with happiness and love and abundance, which is why the kind of work, like your work um, is so interesting because you are, you know, chaperoning, you're an entrepreneur yourself, you're chaperoning young entrepreneurs and, but you also think so much about, yeah, health, mental and physical and, Oh, yeah, I don't know if you had any sort of like blue sky thinking or just kind of thoughts that you wanted to share, like in those lines. I mean, when it comes to, you know, problems in society, putting pressure on people's ability to build and maintain wealth as we've redefined it holistically, I guess it's just this is the fundamental crux of the problem, right? It doesn't matter how much we may think it is beneficial to be spiritually and whatever that means to you, right? Spiritually doesn't necessarily, I'm not saying religion, but whatever that means to you, it, it doesn't matter if you can't feed your kids. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you can't put on the heating now that the electricity bills are going to go out of the roof. You know, how are people going to survive the crisis and the inflation that's coming on top of the mental health crisis that we're in due to the pandemic, on top of the academic and educational crisis and gap that young people have felt over the last two years. So I guess the only thing is like, can we solve societal pressures? And that's where I'm most interested in nowadays. It's like, how can we build, like, I mean, capacity building is, is, is kind of the key area that I work in fundamentally across all initiatives that I work with. So what kind of capacity can we build within neighborhoods, within households, within industries, and then within government to drive meaningful policy that allows people the freedom to even consider and build their wealth in their own image rather than surviving day to day. Like this, a lot of people I work with, you know, we no longer want to work in community centers in the most deprived areas or take on those buildings because why are community centers always crisis response hubs? Why are we not building more centers of excellence like Badu Sports is doing? In East London, Badu Community is a great organization to look at, and they're just they're opening a center of excellence. And that is essentially the narrative or thought that people I work with and myself are looking at, right? Like, let's stop building and saying, oh, here's a like empty, you know, derelict building that you can use as a community center that has no heating and can't do anything. Can we stop doing that and actually just, you know, look at the nice areas in town? and invite our communities into them, into a place that is safe for them to think and find their passion and their job passion and work passion to build healthy our lives. Earlier in our, our discussion, you said this phrase I loved, which is resistance to chaos. Um, is that a phrase that's used in like your realm of work or is that just something that you say? Um, and I also have a follow-up question, which is like, it sounds a lot like, the word res- like resilience, 
which is used a lot in sort of like business training. Um, and it actually becomes almost like a dirty word, re- like more recently, because people think of resilience as a way of like masking the sort of like workplace pressures that are exerted on people. And it's just like, instead of trying to solve that, people are like, why don't you build resilience? But I thought this phrase resistance to chaos was really interesting. So I just thought if you could maybe speak a bit more about that. I just think, A, I, I'm a bit disturbed. Maybe that's too much of a word, but I'm a bit um, I'm a bit cautious that we've gone through a very huge societal trauma, and we haven't paused to recognize that. So one thing was dealing with the pandemic, dealing with the pandemic, then suddenly things unlocked and came open, and then suddenly we've just gone back into the rat race. That's also a hybrid form of the rat race, and nobody's a societal pressure. And the economy does doesn't let us have a minute to think but the effects of us not having stood still like they would have done after a world war you know and and had a memorial and had a time and pause to think oh hey we've gone through chaos um and the effects of that i think is is very dangerous and one of the more dangerous things that we've done as a collective society recently and then on top of that i guess where i come where i'm thinking from is being able to and this is because I grew up as a third culture kid. I moved every two, three years, right? So I have a high tolerance for ambiguity and change. And I think that's helped me over the last couple of years, you know, with all the chaos and with Ukraine and everything going on now. A lot of people are panicking and not knowing how to make sense of life. And luckily, I've been taught the tools early in my life to deal with that. But I think fundamentally, as a business leader, as a citizen, as someone who wants to follow their own path, if you don't want to follow the path of financial wealth, but of this holistic wealth, you need to be resistant to the chaos and you need to be resilient. I don't think resilient is a bad word. I get what you're saying. But to me, resilient means just being able to overcome what life throws at you and follow your own self-perceived value and way of doing things. I guess another point of view is like responsibility. Like someone told me recently, a researcher from Reading University told me recently that the word responsibility actually just means to be able to respond. So it's it's like, you know, when I throw responsibility out there, I hear and see responsibility to myself and to yourself, like act responsible for yourself and what you believe in. Other people take it as, oh, I don't want to be responsible for a whole community or a whole crowd. I never saw it that way. But actually the word responsibility just means to be able to respond. And I think resilience is the same thing. It's right, just to be able to keep acting, just to be able to keep doing in the way that you think is right. But amongst all this chaos and crisis that we live in, which is even harder. Where's the line for you? Because um, you feel like you mentioned at the beginning that you feel like we just kind of continued and almost in our response was to continue. And, and you don't think that was necessarily healthy. But at the same time, I guess you're also acknowledging that response to crisis and, and being yeah. able to respond is a good a good thing in itself where's that line of uh, I guess a healthy response yeah I guess it's a very good point and I, I think and I think and maybe I'll change my mind in a couple of years I think the only healthy line is to build in like so you know like design thinking right so rather than looking at it like a linear project management which was just you know start do end um, looking at it in design thinking where you're constantly thinking agile and you're putting in reflective points and then adapting the process. I guess that's where I see it as like where we are responding, but we, we have built up these tools within ourselves that are, you know, a right network, financial, emotional, spiritual, mental well-being. But then the only thing that I think, and this is one of the priorities when I work with leaders is building reflective tools. And I think you can respond, you can march on, you can continue every movement, but just reflect after every step. And if you need to move left, move left. If you need to move right, move right. If you need to pause, pause. If you need to go back, go back. But don't just march on without reflecting. One of the key aspects to working in the community, um, especially in my line of work, yeah, we get taught straight away, uh, basically, to a reflective model of thinking um, in our practice. And that, and I remember reading an article about one of the things that makes policing quite a, 
interesting profession is that it's not built into their practice. So they're working into the, in the community, but there's no like moment to reflect on their practice or that being the reflections being incorporated into how they kind of change things. So yeah, I agree with that idea. And I think it, it's something that we don't get taught to do in society enough. And it's not just in terms of like professionally, I do think in the way that we approach things in life. Um, yeah, reflective practice. It's funny, point. right? Because I would have never said that at the start of this episode that that was my definition of wealth. But like at the end of it, I just realized that is my definition of wealth. It's the ability and um, real capacity and desire and motivation to, to reflect and adapt, reflect and adapt. They don't come um, siloed. Nikita, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you both. It's uh, been a wonderful hour. <laughs> hour and 40 minutes. Thank you for your time. <laughs> um, please, can you tell our listeners again like where they can find you, your work, if they want to reach out to you, what kind of people do you like hearing from? Just tell us a bit more about how people can find you. Yeah, 100%. So you can find me on Nikita, N-I-K-I-T-A, uh, Chiganda, which is my Rwanda name, G-I-C-A-N-D-A. I almost didn't spell my name right there. Uh, my mom would be very upset. Uh, on Instagram, or you can just Google Nikita Vervelde and find uh, my website, which is NikitaVervelde.com, or find me on LinkedIn, Nikita Vervelde. And yeah, so I work with business leaders, which ranges from, you know, huge organizations that want to improve their diversity and inclusion to working with creative freelancers and helping them build initiatives to working with young people to tackle UN sustainability goals. So whatever you are, whatever you want to do, as long as it's creative and it's fun and something I can get behind, then I'm down to support you. Amazing. And yeah, thank you to all the people who sent us their thoughts, uh, their definitions of wealth. So that's Faye, Jennifer, Sarah, Jessica, Naeem, Paul Smith, Maya, Roger, Ryan, and one person who didn't name themselves who was born in 1978. Thank you too. Thank you for tuning into Third Waves and stay tuned online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's Third with three eyes. I'm Daniela. I'm Tribe. And I'm Nikita.